As we record this podcast, we're doing so in the aftermath of yet another school shooting, this time at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, this time claiming the lives of six people, six lives lost to this unspeakable violence. And I don't know about all of you, but this kind of violence always takes a chunk out of my soul. Of course, our hearts are with the families and the loved ones of those six lives taken way too soon. And if you find yourself feeling in need of connection, support, prayer, or processing, we at the Progressive Spirit encourage you to reach out to your clergy, to your chaplain, to a mental health professional, or any other form of support that you may need. It is definitely out there and it's also here. Today, all I have to offer is a prayer to the highest power that connects us all, that one day enough will at last be enough. Thank you. Welcome to episode four of the Progressive Spirit, a River Road podcast. I'm Natalie. I'm here with Reverend Amanda. And today we're going to talk all things queer theology. It is actually our last podcast episode recording before Amanda goes on sabbatical for four months. So we thought that this would be a great time to kick off with some guest speakers. So let's hear some introductions from them. Hi, everyone. I'm Reverend Sean Neil Barron. I use he, him pronouns, and I am a queer Unitarian Universalist minister that serves in Fort Collins, Colorado, which, if you don't know where that is, basically 45 minutes south of Wyoming, the border, you run into Fort Collins. But I'm originally from Canada. I grew up on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta. And I um, am a queer minister, which, you know, we were talking just before this episode started about how, for me, that feels normal because most of my colleagues seem to be (laughs) queer. But for other people, it's um, not always the case. But um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Hi, dear friends. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jerry Maynard. I am the people's priest. I use he, they pronouns. I live in the traditional lands of the Atakapa Ishak people, which is also known as Humboldt, Texas, which is northeast of Houston, Texas. And I am a uh, independent Catholic priest, a progressive movement of Catholics, Catholic clergy and communities who broke away from the Roman church over progressive theologies and progressive political values quite a long time ago, but we are very small in the United States, and so not very many people know about us. And I am also a a two-spirit person who comes from the Nawa Mashika people who founded uh, Mexico. And uh, so I'm happy to be with you. Thanks. Happy to have you. Welcome to both of you. And I just love that we're kind of all across the country today. It gives me a lot of hope (laughs) for some reason. In times like these. (laughs) So let's talk queer theology. And I think the best way to dig in, to dive into this, is to start by defining theology in a general broad sense. It's a word thrown around a lot. And I feel like unless you're in the academy or doing something like highly professional, we don't stop to actually talk about what that word is. So one of my instructors back in seminary defined it as talk about God, God talk, theology as God talk. And that really struck me at that time because all of the discourse that we do, everything that like the foundations that we work with, kind of all stems from this idea of talk about God and all of the controversy that that has brought up over the years. And interestingly enough for me, like the ways that we talk about God ends up being the ways that we define and shape God, which is kind of different than what I grew up being taught. I grew up a Southern Baptist and we're taught that God is the creator and that God created us all and it's God's world that we're living in. But what we actually do is we create and shape God all the time. And it's happened in some really toxic, dangerous, violent ways for centuries upon centuries. So fast forward to right now, where we're talking about queer theology, subversive and deconstructive theology. So recently, uh, we had the pleasure of hosting Catherine von Stockton, who's a queer theorist. 
out of the University of Utah. She calls herself a missionary to the missionaries come to our church to speak. And she preached about God in this really queer way that I loved. She talked about God being the word between our lips. And, you know, she, she goes on to talk about how, you know, when we speak to one another, our words traverse this gap between us. And there's an, an unknowability of that gap. Like I'm never going to truly know another person in a deep and intimate way. And yet there's this desire and this yearning to connect to each other, this yearning to uh, build something together, to commune, uh, to experience pleasure from each other, to, uh, to touch and yet know that we cannot uh, grasp. And, and that always has been uh, a way that God talk has made sense to me. It's those, those urges that we have to traverse these gaps between us in relationship and that desire and that yearning for something that calls us to something that we, all, we don't always know it uh, and yet we feel it and we yearn for it. I love that word. And that we know that it, it, it cannot be contained. Like we cannot attain it. It's always, we're always approaching it, always approximating it, always trying to, uh, to touch it. And she talks about how the, like the kiss between, you know, when you kiss someone, it has that same type of experience, right? You're touching them. You're having this experience, this yearning to be with them in a way, but you mm -hmm. can, you can't, you, you, you can't control them. You're, you're just encountering them. And it's in that encounter that something happens. And I love that as a metaphor and a way of thinking about God as this thing that happens between us, but also is this urge and yet is still unknowable. The word encounter is such a yummy word. Mm -hmm. When you were describing that, I thought of the word union and how we, growing up, we were talked to about God, mm. but the talking we did about God felt very limited and therefore disconnecting. Mm. And these kinds of theologies that we're going to dig into today brings me and other folks like me back into union with God. Mm -hmm. So Jerry, I'm curious, when was the first time you encountered the phrase, term, or concept of queer theology or queering theology? How'd you get to where you are today? <laughs> That's a long story. <laughs> There's a lot of ups and downs and turnarounds and doing the hokey pokey and all the things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know if I remember when I first encountered the term, but I think for me, theology uh, is about. Um, we begin our Catholic liturgies with the um, the opening line, as we begin to enter into these sacred mysteries. Mm. And I often think of theology as an exploration of mystery. And even though we were not explicitly told growing up in the church that mysteries were things that didn't necessarily need answers, we were always encouraged kind of subtly in our sacramental expression of, of exploring the mysteries of life. And, and really, I think now, in my preaching and teaching, I encourage people not to be concerned about being a disciple of Jesus or a disciple of Christianity, but learning to be a disciple of life mm. um, because everything else is just an addendum. I often tell people that if Genesis 1, the myth of Genesis 1 is, is true, then when the creator created all of creation, they said that it was good and very good. Therefore, we start from a complete story. Mm. Um, and everything else is an addendum. We start from 100%, not zero. That means that inherently there is so much to explore and to discover. So this is this theology of queer theology, deconstructive theology, uh, subversive theology, all of it is about adventure. And so for me, it's all about discovering what I know, what I've always known, what I need to know, but also what we all know. And ultimately, what I know is that I don't know anything. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I just enjoy the, the journey, you know, the adventure, the fun, the play. I feel like I'm going to be doing a lot of the UU version of Amen, which is, mm, 
think this. <laughs> this is already giving me the spirit. Just, I mean, you, the phrase that you use, disciple of life. I want us to hold on to that for later because I hope that we're going to talk about practical uses of queer theology or queering theology and the disciples of life. For some reason that connects me to how do we give this life? And I think we're going to get there, Uh, especially right now. This is such a crucial conversation to be having with all of the yet again, another round of attacks on um, trans and non-binary people, especially children, under the guise of protecting the children. And oftentimes it's the religious right who dominates the discourse around religion, theology, spirituality, um, that really undergird a lot of policies and legislation and the ways that this is enacted on our lives. You know, so understanding what does it mean for someone outside of the academy, outside of the clergy to be a participant, to encounter this queer theology, I think it's going to be really important as we all, as ambassadors, carry this out, as clergy, as religious folks, as we carry this out into the world. And Natalie, I'm very curious if you have any thoughts that are coming to you from this conversation. Well, I think that the inherent concept of queering something is all about approaching it from a new perspective, maybe an unexpected perspective, or one that is actively against the mainstream often. Mm. So the fact that we are talking about theology as it's God talk, it's union with God, it is being a disciple of life, I think that it only makes sense for us to queer it because why would we do all of those things normally why would we talk about god not in a distinct way when god is all-encompassing and everything that is is god in a way Mm -hmm. we have to queer that because that is queer inherently absolutely i think being human is actually a very queer experience Um, And I think a lot of the things that people accept as kind of normal are actually super Mm -hmm. uh, queer in, in, in the use of that word as strange. Like I, and I love that. Like, I don't think strange is a bad thing, but you know, when we think about like normative gender categorizations that we've inherited right now, that that all of these laws are trying to enforce, it's super strange that people think that in all of the breadth of human diversity, that we could somehow filter Mm. us down into two distinct boxes (laughs) for gender. That's super strange. Like when you think about it, like weird. What? Like that's uh, firstly, it's not a system that all cultures have, right? We know that many different communities and, and nations have very distinct understandings of gender that don't come in a binary. And yet, oh, it's really strange that we think that that is, you know, the it's always been this way and will ever be this way. Like that's strange. And so to live inside that system is inherently going to be queer because we know our experiences aren't going to fit in those boxes, even if we play it very straight even if we are very normative, there's parts of our experience that are never going to fit in the boxes. And so for me, like queering is really about how do we, how do we be honest with this reality of being human, which is inherently really strange. And how, how do you like say the things that make me strange are actually things that shouldn't give me shame? I think that's one of the biggest moves in queering is, hey, the things that make me strange shouldn't give me shame. And how do we then center those experiences if we are going to believe Genesis and Jerry over here, that if if it's all good, right? If creation is good, if life is good, then just because it's strange doesn't mean it's bad and actually can be a source of that that God talk. I think you use the key word also in the word being honest. I think there's a lot of theologies out there that are not honest Amen. and they are trying to push us into a delusion and for me queer theology and being queer inherently is about disruption disrupting the tendency to be delusional oh. disrupting our our foolish folly you know mm. like I tell people all the time, like, I'm just radically convinced that this life is awesome. And uh, I think we should dive deeply into it. I, when I look at the mystics often for uh, guidance and encouragement, 
that's what I see them doing all the time. Is they just were like, let's dive in, let's figure it out, let's and let's tell people about it. Mary Oliver, before she died, she went um, to a conference in California for young folks, and she was asked, you know, what would be your advice to to young people as an elder uh, who's been around for a long time? And she said um, three things: pay attention, be astounded. And share your astonishment. Oh. And I just think that's fabulous. To me, that those three steps, that is what it means to be a disciple of life. That's what it means to have an honest theology. Is that everything here is like, it's worth the investment. Um, it's worth showing up for your body and in your body and in this world. And what sucks about it is that when you have this good, beautiful, creative energy flowing through you, there are people out there who don't want you to do that mm-hmm. and and want to reduce you to something less than that. Mm-hmm. And, and so the sacred part or the sacred revolution begins by saying, no, we, we want to live fully into that. And I often remind Christians that Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, you know? Uh, so that means everything. God is radically obsessed with all of you. So bring all of you to the table. Mm-hmm. The universalist way that I talk about that for non-Christian folks is, you know, if we believe in universal salvation, which is to say that we're all bound up together and we're all bound up to the same place, if universal salvation is true in that way, it's also true for all parts of us, right? All parts of our experience, all parts of our life, all parts of what it means to be. And so if all of that is true, if, if all of my life, even the parts that I want to hide in a closet sometimes, still have that place of salvation in them, then that is exactly what you're saying, Jerry. What does it mean to say no to all the forces that would keep it in the closet? And what does it mean to open it? Y'all are breathing life into me. (laughs) Y'all are breathing life into me and preaching entire words right now. And Jerry, you had said something about subversive. You'd use that word again that has come up. And it made me realize that, you know, when we call things subversive theology or deconstructing and things like that, sometimes it gives me pause because I think like, what's so subversive about this? And I feel like this is giving me a little bit of insight to just that phrase. Uh, What's subversive about it is not us who is doing the God talk. It is the pushback that makes it subversive. The lack of control right? So much theology has kind of, the forces have come together to create a picture of control and conformity. This kind of theology breaks that wall open. This also makes me want to take a a pause and let's talk about the word queer and let's talk about the concept of queerness, because I think a lot of people have different understandings of it and there's space for all of it. But let's just talk about what queer has become to mean and how it has transformed even over the last five or 10 years, Um, but definitely over the last five decades. Anyone want to take a stab at that? (laughs) I would love to start by saying, um, as I think the youngest person in this podcast right now, I personally have mostly encountered queer in the academic context of it where it is more of a reclaiming of the word queer I have never had queer used as a slur and I know that a lot of people listening who might be of older generations are like I can't believe they're saying that and let's be quite clear um, we are saying the word queer because we are in this room all queer and we are allowed to say that word we are not saying it in a derogatory way we are saying it in a reclaiming way and also it's just a really good umbrella term i think that's super super important and and yet there's an interesting element of like the Mm. the power of the term as a term that was used to degrade gives it its power right um because you know queer as in that thing that is strange and weird and and uh, like marginal I think the power of reclaiming it is to say, actually, like just because you think it's on the margins doesn't mean it isn't worthy. Um, And just because you think it isn't uh, something that should be, you should actually embrace. 
I, I preached a sermon uh, a few weeks ago in which I talked about the word fag. And I talked about how as a kid, I had this really weird resonance with this word because it was actually a more useful gender marker for me than boy. And that's like a really queer thing for like a elementary school kid to be like walking through. But like fag was used as an insult all the time. And yet for me, there was something in it. I'm like, something in that word is true. Something in that word is true. And that's why I think the same thing about queer. There's something in the word of the like the oddity and the strangeness that's actually beautiful. And that, well, it, we are starting to use queer as this like umbrella term for a kind of LGBTQIA people and communities. I think the the transgressive part of it is really important. The strange part of it is super important. And also the idea of the erasing of boundaries and barriers that, or things that seem as static or essential, essentialist. That part of queer is super important and free. That is so fascinating because the last part of what you said around, from what I'm hearing, we need to embrace also the strangeness, the weirdness of it at, kind of in its origins as an insult, as a slur, mm-hmm. because that's also a part of this. Why do they hate us? Why do they hate it? Right. I like what you said, Sean, particularly around the uh, use of that word fag. And I was actually thinking about that. And I, as I was thinking about it, it's like, oh, I forgot to ask if we could use words like that on here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I was like, oh, we'll find out. <laughs> here we are. So here we go. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I. I like using those words that were historically used as uh, weapons against us because I think that we can then, as we have um, and are continuing to do, uh, reshape them in, from being weapons into being tools for our uh, liberation. I very freely use the word queer and fag and sissy and, and all those other words that people projected onto you and onto myself at different times mainly because i'm like they doesn't mean it doesn't hurt me like you think it's gonna hurt me and um and so it's almost like a plowshares experience where we turn in swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks um, we turn something that was meant for our harm into something beautiful that actually unites us and so i think it's wonderful um for me, uh, like I said earlier, queer means to disrupt specifically binary thinking, mm. either or thinking. I think being queer is inherently non-dual, if I wanted to use an academic term. I think ultimately being queer is about tuning in to what Julian Norwich calls uh, oneing, um, the oneing uh, nature of God, the unicative vision, tapping into that universal oneness. I often remind people that we live in the universe, which is one verse or version or versification of the cosmic song that we're all a part of. Mm. And so, yeah, I just, I think it's about tuning into all of that and, and living boldly there. You know, we talk a lot about coming out but I don't think we talk enough about living out, mm. living out loud, which I think is, I don't know, this is a controversial opinion because older queers might not agree with me, but I don't think coming out is as important as living out because um, coming out is too event-oriented mm. and living out is really more the reality because that's that's the hard part. It's hard to live out loud on a daily basis in a world that is constantly trying to shout you out and shout you down. Yeah. There's something to be said about surviving versus thriving. Yeah. Can I add something in that vein? I think one of the parts that I find really difficult in this space is, so if we think of our lives as a sacred text, and so in our tradition, we have this program called Our Whole Lives, which is a sexuality education program that is comprehensive, queer inclusive. And one of the activities you do if you're a trainer for it is they divide up the group and half the group goes into one room and they write words that describe a peak sexual experience. And the other group writes down words that they associate with a peak spiritual experience. And then you come back in and you're not told what the other group did. You think they're just another group. And then you look at the list and you're like, whoa, these lists look really similar. And then it's revealed, aha, one people did sex, one people did spirit and look how similar they are, right? And 
it's it's a beautiful moment, right? I think we can all like talk about like, yeah, some of those moments are really orgasmic when we feel that connectedness to, to God and or to that a sense of interdependence uh, that we're a part of. And yet I find it super hard to bring like my exegesis of my queer life into non-queer spaces. Mm. It's super challenging for me to to feel free um, to, especially as a minister, to bring in my queer experience into preaching, into how I relate to others, because uh, you, I always start getting the messages that you're talking too much about being gay and that it's not relatable. And yet I think queerness is the, again, I think it's the most relatable thing about being human. And there's parts of, you know, my life that if I were to talk about them, there would be a lot of like shade and, and, and scorn because of the way that I live my queerness, not like closeted, but just in ways that are not acceptable in cishet society. And so it makes it really challenging to live out loud when you do feel like your lives are kind of bifurcated for the places that you can feel free. You can have these conversations like I've had with Jerry in which we're like talking about like some of these intersections between like sex and, you know, healing from trauma that are, that are really interconnected, that are very queer. And then you're like, well, I can't really talk about that. Mm-hmm. With with the heteros, <laughs> I mean, I can, and it would be good for all of them. But there is that that that, that barrier that like oh like well, unless you want to expose your yeah to people exactly for the sake of I run into this a whole lot when I am using texts like I recently um, got the Black Trans Prayer Book Yay. to something during the prayer time. And I had to be like, next, next, they won't, they won't get this. I can't say this, you know, like, because I've, I was explaining to someone, a colleague one time that when it comes to specifically like black transness, there's such a rawness and authenticity to the art that comes out of that community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is really hard for predominantly white or heterosexual audiences, or even in some cases, like queer audiences to handle together like maybe you could handle it individually but in like i'm thinking of like a sunday morning context there's and and then speaking just a little bit less subversively about like myself even like i you know how much do you want to bear to people especially when they when there's such a predominance of whiteness and heterosexuality um even in uu spaces where people might not be straight but there's still heteronormativity and how much do you want to use yourself as the deconstructing mode for that because then you run into a whole lot of issues around boundaries and i mean i had people asking me in the email like we were trying to figure out like what your your sexuality is but they knew i was queer it was because i wasn't partnered I wasn't mm. partnered, so they just... The default hetero thing starts to play out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they were debating, in my absence, what my sexuality was. Mm. You know, and that, as a minister, you're in front of people. And more people know you than you know them. Mm. So, I mean, how much do we want to use our experiences as queer people is another question and what can people handle that's what i was about to say and that i think there's a real reality and I, I think as clergy we know this really well in that there are some things that people cannot carry there are certain parts of your truth that they cannot hold does that mean that we didn't just place it at their feet and allow them to just pick it up when they can hold it or does that mean we hold it back and i'm kind of of the mindset that i feel like I think it's worthwhile to put things at people's feet, even if I know they can't pick it up, um, because they need to know that it's something that they need to strive for um, mm-hmm. and that they, ha- they have to expand their truth barom- barometer, so to speak. Mm. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard, especially if you're dating, too. <laughs> if you're a queer clergy oh. person and you're dating <laughs> and you happen to like be non-monogamous or be kinky or like all these other things, and people are like, wait, this is a lot. I don't think I can handle this. Lock, swipe left. That's a, uh, at, in the UU community, that's one of those uh, next frontiers is like people still aren't publicly out in different ways like that. 
because mm-hmm. then you have to all these questions that we're talking about come up. Yeah. And it's still not as I don't know if it's not acceptable as much as it's just uh, maybe the word isn't a, like not as accepted. I don't know. Sean, what do you think? I don't know if you've had any experiences with that. I definitely had experiences with that. Um, I think that there's an appropriate fear of coming out of those closets within our association. I like, I know poly clergy have, mm-hmm. you know, come out to their congregations and bad things have happened. Um, you know, they've, they've really struggled with that. And so what does that mean as clergy? It's super challenging to know that this thing that theoretically a lot of our people, a lot of progressive people would affirm, it is still that type of affirming that it's like, why don't you go do that in private over there? Right. You know, oh, that's so great that you might have another partner. That's awesome. But like, let's not talk about that. You know, it really is a closeting type action. And yet we know the liberation has to come through, through, through living in the full embrace of it. And so how do we, how do we help our people? And the way I've been trying to get access to this is by um, trying to convert my congregation to be queer. It's what the right is scared of. You're who the right is. <laughs> I know. I'm literally recruiting and trying to make them. I'm not trying to make them gay. I'm not trying to make them trans. I'd be very happy if they're either of those. Yeah. But I am trying to make them queer. We did, we did a service uh, a few years ago. I went to a bunch of locksmiths in in town and I asked for all their cast off keys. They're like the keys that cut that didn't work. And we had this ritual in which um, we had people come forward and I gave them a key. Mm. And I said, this is the key to the closet that you're in. Oh, and you know what it is. Here's the key. You, you have the key now. What you do next is up to you. It, It is your sacred choice, right? Like, I don't think anyone needs to come out of the closet. I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think oftentimes you have a better life when you do it, mm-hmm. often, but not always, right? Everyone's circumstances and realities are different. Um, and sometimes you invite people into your closet and you have a little you know, party in your closet and that's great. But like you have to unlock the door, right? You have to unlock your mind a little bit to, to embrace it and actually not see shame in it and then maybe invite other people in there. But whatever you do, this is the key. And, you know, I had people come up to me afterwards mm. and they're like, Sean, I'm not gay. And I'm like, ah, that's not the point. The point is that there's something in your life that you feel ashamed of that you shouldn't be. There's a part that you think is strange that isn't. And the way that you're suppressing that and, and, and the way that, that strange way that you're looking at the world could actually be liberatory for everyone if you only open up about it. And so that's the invitation. And here's your key. And it was a really, it was a really powerful service. That is very powerful. And that's how subversive theology becomes liberating theology. Yeah, You know, all these different ways of talking about God and all these different frameworks. Like for me, my theological framework is womanism and liberation theology. Those are my anchors because it decenters, right? And it centers the margins and it changes the perspective and the conversation. Who's at the center of the story deeply matters when a story is being told. Mm. So it expands what we think of as ethical. It expands what we think of as holy, of godlike, and deserving and worthy and human. And what I know is that it looks at the stories that we've been told and it sees them differently. Right. Right? Yeah. Like it's saying, hey, we received this biblical story and now we're seeing the ways that like w- like that women are actually powerful yeah. <laughs> and making really different choices than we assumed them. And it's the same way with yes. queering the text is like, we see queer people in scripture, like they're there, but we just haven't had the, the vision to see them until you start queering them. And then you start to say, huh, isn't that strange how those two are acting ah. against each other? Isn't it strange how they acted against the cultural conditions? Isn't it interesting how they defied questions of purity? Like all of those things are very queer actions, but you have to have the lens to be able to see them. And then you have richness in your tradition to draw from. And I think that's a great segue into now coupling theology and queer. So we've talked about what queerness means to us and what queerness could mean in general. We've talked about what theology is and subversive theologies. Now let's put those together um, and talk about queer theology. 
Now, I was doing some research and some digging and thinking of someone who maybe wasn't queer or someone who is queer and doesn't know anything about this. And I looked it up on Wikipedia because <laughs> that's what I think someone would do if they wanted to know. And so Wikipedia, I didn't go through all of it, but at the top of the article, they, they list three different ways that queer theology happens or that it, it could be expressed. One is theology done by, with, and for LGBTQIA individuals focusing on their needs uh, that they have identified. The second one is theology that purposefully opposes the fixity of social and cultural norms regarding gender and sexuality. This point also talks about being equitable and marginalized voices coming to the centers and perspectives, kind of like what we've been talking about with subversive theology. And the third one is theology that challenges and deconstructs harmful and historically imposed boundaries with respect to gender and sexual identity. So those are the kind of the three categories that I think actually are tangible enough to work with as we start talking about, we've already been talking about, Practical uses of queer theology. What does it mean that there is a theology out there created by and for queer people that's not making things up, right? We're not. So big theme over the last few weeks of my life that I keep seeing over and over again, the message that we were always here. Mm. Trans people were always here. Non-binary people were always here. We're not making things up. It's not new. Um, we were always here so that there's a theology created by and for queer folks it's not making stuff up and here's the beauty of queer theology right so that we've always been here that's the the centering of queer experience in uh, in queer theology and the other part of queer theology would say actually we are making this all up (laughs) right that the the systems of power have constructed these ideas. And so, you know, this is like, you know, Foucault on steroids, right? Like all of this has been changing over and over again in ways that have been, you know, dominated by power. And so as we deconstruct that, those questions of power, we're going to see new things, new ways of expression. And so actually we haven't always been Mm. here because none of it Mm. has ever been constant. None of it has ever been static. And so the beauty of queer theology is it says, yes to both and so it's complicated in that beauty which it says yes we've always been here and no one has ever been here ah oh right and and the, the tension in between those two things is so productive and so beautiful because then we have this power of saying wow not only do we have a history we can draw from we also have the empowerment to like create and explore and build together and reimagine and deconstruct at the same time Wow. The humanist in me loves that. The humanist in me that's just obsessed with the cycles of humanity, what we create, what we destroy, what we are, what we aren't, the good, the bad, the ugly, loves this idea of we were always here and we've never been here before. And there's something very Octavia Butler, parable of the sower about that as well in shaping and creating God. And I just, I'm thankful that you said that. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful framing of this place that we're at, that the four of us are in this space talking about this. I don't think we've ever been here before, right? Like this is not something that I thought was possible growing up at all. Like not the tech piece and not the sociocultural piece. (laughs) I think as an indigenous person, I'm highly aware of the reality that I think we do gender very differently than white folks do, Mm. Um, particularly in the sense, and sexuality for that matter, in the sense that we, as a two-spirit person, so the term two-spirit, speaking of being here always and also not being here before, um, is a fairly new term. It was invented in 1990 at a, a pan-native conference as its placeholder term for this uh, very expansive understanding of, of gender uh, amongst our various tribes and nations and bands. So it was a, it's a placeholder term because all of our different languages have different words with different genders and they have different cultural contexts and ceremonial things and all this other stuff. So it's kind of a unifying term and so to speak. And so, mm-hmm. um, but historically two spirit people 
were considered to be so sacred and so important that it was a badge of honor if your community had at least one two-spirit person. And if you didn't, your community was considered to be incomplete. Ironically, I think uh, Republicans are trying to scare people into thinking that queer people and trans folks and gender expansive people are dangerous to be around children or elders, which historically, two-spirit people were the ones who safeguarded children and elders. Because our understanding of two-spirit people is that we live at the intersection of heaven and earth, the sacred realm and the mundane realm. But we also live at the intersection of masculine energies and feminine energies. Mm. Um, so we're all four of those things at the same time in one being. And that's why we were ceremony leaders. We were also healers. We were um, uh, warriors. We would lead people into battle. And it was a great honor to have your child named by a two-spirit person. So our understanding it was not reductionist, but rather it was a more of an understanding that this was a, a very beautiful thing that helps to heal our community and makes us stronger and something to be brave about and to be proud of. So I think that understanding is really kind of an, an undergirding reality of what we would call queer theology now. And that is right. saying that this is an honor to, to be able to embody these beautiful, sensual, sexual, spiritual energies all at the same time. And there's something eschatological about it, right? Um, it's mm. pointing us to something else. And that something else is the beauty of integration, yes. that we can be all things at the same time and also nothing at the same time, you know, both and beginning end at the same time, all this all this beautiful stuff. It's so interesting that, you know, when I asked the question of like, when's the first time that you encountered this, you know, phrase of queer theology, you're like, well, I don't know how to answer that. And it's because it's built in yeah. to your culture and traditional experience. You know, it didn't need to necessarily be named as queer theology. Mm-hmm. And that's in itself an important reminder that, you know, we have found a name for this in terms of like contemporary religious, you know, kind of discourse. We've named something that has always been a part of of expression, you know, that's always been alive. And I feel like that's such an important reminder as, as we embark on wrapping our minds around this and figuring out what does this mean to live this in the world, you know? What does it mean to queer theology? So there's two different ways of, of this phrase, right? So there's queer theology as a noun, as a thing. And then there's queering theology, which is, seems like an action. And to me, I don't know if maybe the queering theology is where we start, you know, putting practical applications into our lives or not. But I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts on the two different ways that, you know, we talk about this concept. Or is that my Virgo brain just like needing <laughs> to break things down so semantically and knowing that, you know, it just must have a purpose? Well, I can give an answer or a, a adjacent to an answer in a lived, through a lived experience that just literally happened 48 hours ago. I was in the state capital of Texas, Austin, uh, to testify against one of the anti-trans bills that they're trying to pass. And I remember walking around the Capitol building and thinking to myself, this is so odd. We are on stolen land uh, that was taken from people who never had these types of arguments. Um, And I'm in this space to where I'm like, I'm trying to be a pastoral presence to people who are really struggling to find the bravery and the God energy that they need to be able to stand in front of these people who are willfully ignoring all of the data that is given to them and have the arrogance to question doctors and psychologists who have 12 plus years of education and multiple advanced degrees (laughs) on these topics. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is a weird space to be in. Like, Mm. where, where is the... I mean, it was one of those moments, I had a couple of moments where I thought to myself, I really wish I believed in a vengeful God. 
Because I would love if that God just like threw a lightning bolt down and all of them died and we were all better off. <laughs> but I don't believe in that God. Maybe maybe somebody else does and maybe, you know, something will happen. Their, their God will do the job. <laughs> yeah, that God will do the job. But I don't believe in that God or that divinity. I saw somebody at the Capitol that had a book of spells. And I was like, oh, yes, please cast a spell on these fools. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but it was, it was just funny to me to be in that liminal space and mm-hmm. really sensing the energy of everyone and the frustration and the agonizing hope and and really just questioning like where do we move in this space you know in our ceremonies we dance when mm-hmm. we have a question we dance uh, when we want to experience the divine, we dance and we sing and we move our bodies into vibrational experiences. And I kept thinking to myself, how do we dance through this? How do I get myself into a vibrational frequency that I can comprehend this? Because I really don't. And I remember showing up to the Capitol, not being scared per se, but being very overwhelmed by all the emotions I had. And we opened our ceremony, we opened our rally rather with our, with a ceremony where we had dancers from my tribe come and lead us in a ceremony. And the, the sound of the ancient drum beating in the center of this giant building reminded me that the heartbeat of the universe will always go on if we dare to show up and allow it to, to invade our bodies. So... Anyway, I don't know if that answers any of your question or not, but I think it helps to show how we do queer theology or how we're queering theology as a very lived, everyday reality. Mm -hmm. And it requires us to go into spaces of conflict. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, it makes me think of, Jerry, when you said how my people have dealt with as we dance. I both had the image of you know, indigenous dancing, but I also had like gay club. Yeah. yeah. Right. As like sacred space, spaces made sacred by, you know, dwelling together. And, you know, I definitely have mm-hmm. taken questions to a gay bar, to queer spaces and needed those embodied practices and community to help me move through. Um, and part of the, queer theology or queering theology is to say, huh, maybe, you know, maybe the church, the, the temple, the, the sacred, the officially authorized sacred spaces aren't the only portals to those spaces, right? It's also these other places. Um, there's this beautiful um, Jewish congregation in San Francisco that has this prayer book, this sitter, and they have these beautiful prayers for lots of different types of experiences. And one of them is they have one for like taking an HIV test, which, you know, as a queer guy, you know, a, a living in this, about the stigma and the yeah. fear of HIV is like dominated my whole queerness. And so the idea that a, that a religious mm-hmm. community would say, huh, there's actually something sacred in this. Um, I had a friend, a uh, minister at the, at the UCC church in Berkeley. She wrote this beautiful prayer about prep. Uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and like what a beautiful life-giving thing it is and what a divine thing it is to take uh, a medication that would prevent the spread of HIV Um, but they have this one uh, prayer it's called for an for unexpected intimacy which is an interesting title but really it's about like, like hooking up and it talks about Genesis 32 31 so it quotes that it says in the dark in a strange place our father jacob encountered a stranger with whom he grappled all night interesting like think if you don't know the story like what, what do we think like grappled wrestled hmm like could be something else there right he never knew the stranger's name i'm not going to say that i've never had an encounter in which i've not known the person's name right been there done that right yeah yet their encounter was a blessing which turned jacob into yes. israel and made him realize i've seen god face to face and you know, their prayer says, may this intimate time with another person be an encounter with angels that allows us both to touch and see the divine in the name of God and the God of Israel who created passion and wove it throughout creation, turning strange uh-huh. places into holy ground and strangers into a source of blessing. Yes. For me, that's that's queering theology of saying, hey, this thing 
that you might feel shame of, that society thinks isn't worthy, that doesn't have divineness in it, that actually, if you approach it, I'm not saying every hookup is going to be divine, but, <laughs> but that it has the possibility to, with the right uh, orientation, to say, wow, I'm meeting an angel here. Like, and we are, we are grappling and trying to bless each other. I mean, what an interesting way to encounter someone sexually to say, I'm trying to bless you. I think that's, that's so what... funny because I have a funny story uh, about blessing, uh, relating sex to, to being a blessing um, or sexual expression to being a blessing. Because I have a couple of friends of mine who, uh, so I'm a very proud member of the leather and kink uh, communities. Um, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are in those different spaces all over the country. And um, a couple of them love that I'm a very openly queer uh, person of faith and, and clergy person. And they kind of, in a loving and playful way, tease me about it. And uh, so anytime uh, we're like chatting or whatever, if they're feeling kind of a little frisky, they'll sometimes be like, hey, pastor, I wish you were here because I need a blessing. Oh. <laughs> and I remember the first time they did that, I thought, oh, my gosh, that is hilarious and so playful and so naughty. And there's something really beautifully divine about that. So let's make that a thing. <laughs> and so so that's now a standard thing in our conversations. <laughs> You mentioned earlier, you were talking about Julian of Norwich, and she also had queer divine experiences. Like half of the things she wrote about were like weird gay dreams about God, right? So you are following in the footsteps of the mystic <laughs> elders by doing that. I'm doing my best. Yeah, some of their writings were spicy. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, child. <laughs> Right. And, and like, let's like turning the other side of queer theology, you know, the queering of the idea of like having spicy relationships with God. I mean, that's definitely queering theology. But then on the other side, we know that monastic Ooh, yeah. communities were refuges for for queer people, people who had same sex desires, people who were gender because they didn't fit into the societal expectations. And so, hey, you know, you should go live in a place where you can have, you know, that space. Um, and so there were the hotbeds of it. There's like so, so many diaries of nuns talking about how much non-action was going on in the convent, right? And like, it makes sense from a reality of humanness of like, how do we seek connection? How do we seek that sense of union? How do we seek uh, affirmation of who we are? And where can we find that in a society that isn't going to give us that? Um, and it's, you know, fascinating when, you know, I especially tell non-religious people or people who have had a very uh, straight understanding of religious history that like, oh no, like the <laughs> mm-hmm. gay as fuck were the nunneries. It makes me think of some recent story where, I mean, I don't even know if this is true, but they wanted to put a bunch of women's only like flight, like an astronaut, like space flight. I can't think of the actual word for that. Because they didn't want them getting pregnant. And everyone was like, oh, honey. <laughs> oh, okay. You don't have to worry about that. They didn't want them like hooking up. And it was like, oh. Yeah, they didn't want to have sex. Oh, that's that's cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one, and then part of me says, like, no one tell them. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Like, well, you know, I, got your I back think here. of like, with all of these deconstructing theologies, all of these subversive theologies, the way that it plays out practically for me, especially like as a minister and, you know, preaching a good word about life and and how we are in this life, it comes to an idea of reclaiming one's power and agency. Yeah, I mean, like there's a lot of ways to take queer theology and there's a lot of, Mm. you know, ways to encounter it. But I think living day to day, this becomes an act of reclamation and also an act of expansion, Mm -hmm. just expanding what is possible? And we talked about this with Afrofuturism and the Black imagination, expanding what is possible in this human experience, making space for it because it's already there. So it's, sometimes it's like there's something this big, and when we constrict it and, and we, we squeeze it to death, you know, but when we start expanding, we make space for what is already there. And that to me, queer theology gives us tools to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's something like 
some very like what might seem basic to us like let's look at bible scripture and disprove what we've been taught about it you know that's still very powerful for people who are just now arriving to that point um or needing to remember that they are loved (laughs) that they are part of god's family right whether it's something like that or if it's talking about let's redefine what family is right let's you know, a family doesn't have to be a nuclear family with mom, dad, you know, children. A family can mean a lot of things, including how we make families, how many people are the yeah. adults involved. That is a way of expanding. And queer theology uh, gives us tools to do that, which in our congregations is really important to make space for all kinds of families um, and it, knowing that that's triggering. So I feel like however it is that we're talking about queering theology, at the end of the day, I feel like our task as religious professionals and the task of those who claim a religious identity, whether they are clergy, congregants, spiritual folks who aren't connected to a faith community, our task is to help be those spaces of expansion for people in this world. If it means that we are pulling out a Bible and disproving the silly Leviticus scriptures everyone uses, if that means that we're sharing something about ourselves that shows them that it's possible, like however it looks, queer theology gives us tools to do that. And I hope that we can bring that into our faith uh, communities more and more in ways that we don't feel like we're overexposing ourselves or putting ourselves out there too much, but in ways that remind people yeah. that this talk about God and that our shaping God is something that is in our hands. Um, and as a Unitarian Universalist and as a humanist, I truly deeply believe that it is in our hands. Yeah. For people who might, you know, have more cosmology in their universal view to understand that there is a loving God, that there's not exceptions to that and that we are holy and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. And that's how I want to use queer theology um, as mm-hmm. a clergy person and then also just as a woman of faith. I really love um, Patrick Chang, who's a... Uh, queer theologian in the Episcopal tradition, Asian American man. And he wrote this really good intro Mm -hmm. to queer theology from the Christian perspective called radical love. And, you know, he places radical love as the, as the heart of queer theology, right? It's this understanding of that's, that is what God is. And so, you know, for Unitarian Universalists or non-theistic folks, you know, thinking about like a love that, that defies Mm. boundaries and barriers like that is the heart of it but he says that queer theology has four sources he's coming from a christian tradition he says scripture the traditions of the church reason and experience and you know as a queer person who doesn't come from christianity i think those are still meaningful categories right i think my my lived experience is a sacred part of the text of my life and so how my experience forms how I live in the world, reason, as I encountered my own queerness, like there were moments in which I had to like encounter the internalized shit that I had in me about what was, what is a family? What should I expect from a partner? Is it okay if I'm not everything to mm-hmm. my partner? Like those undoing of kind of heterosexist scripts was definitely a, an exercise of reason. Tradition, I love the idea of thinking about the ways the church has been, like thinking about those nuns and those practices, even like sacramental theologies that invite a different understanding of ourselves but then scripture um this is both reclaiming of christian scripture but also thinking about what are the sacred texts of your life that you go back to i mean jerry invoked mary oliver you know i think about writings of queer people the struggle of queer liberation as a scriptural text that we can draw from in the ways that you know the, the the bible is a message of the resistance of people and them trying to live. It's the same sort of scripture. And so I, I like those categories that can help us give shape to Love that. about where mm-hmm. our theologies can come from. And it does give shape. It does give shape and in, in alignment with our UU kind of one of our UU values of direct experience, yeah. direct experience, um, you know, and in this episode, we've used the words mystery, encounter, 
experience, expansion. We've used language just in our very words that really bring queer theology to life, that really bring us to life. Uh, And it's been such a joy to share in this time with each one of you and to really take a step back and look at what we've made possible just by existing, you know, just by being a point of that encountering for the people that are around us and being clergy, being people of faith, being religious professionals out loud mm-hmm. is is something that folks who were struggling before us made possible. And I think that's a part of it as well. And I'm just very honored to have this conversation. And my deepest hope is that these conversations are happening in a multitude of spaces, especially right now. Amen. I'm reminded of a poem that Audre Lorde uh, wrote called A Litany for Survival. Mm. And there's a line in there that I, I just find so lovely because Audre Lorde was so fabulously queer in so many ways. The beginning part of it says, for those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, for those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, this is the part I like, who love in doorways coming and going, in the hours in between dawns, looking inward and outward, at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths, so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. And it's one of my favorites, sacred scriptures. That that whole passage, I, I think that encapsulates queer theology and queering theology and what it is that we're trying to do in this space. And I think it's beautiful and malleable and wonderful. And and I'm just so happy to be here. I, I, I'm just glad to be included. <laughs> yeah. What was the phrase you used, Jerry, at the beginning of this? Um, you said something about this love for life. Radically obsessed with life. Radically yeah. obsessed with yeah. life. Mm. I think the last thing I want to say is I remember I was invited to talk to a bunch of college students who were part of this group in which it was you know, moving through queer identity and what it means to be queer. And this, I was invited to the segment to talk about queerness and religion. And I got like super angry in that meeting, which was interesting because anger is not an emotion that I live with a lot of the time. And the anger that I was touching in those moments was because I heard from so many of them how they wanted to have a relationship with God, um, but they felt like it was denied to them as a queer person. And I just remember saying, like, there's no power in the world that is strong enough that can that can put a barrier in between you and a relationship with the holy. There's no church. There's no idea. There's no nothing. And I think that that conviction is at the heart of queer queering theology is to say these institutions can't get in the way. They can't get in the way of love. They can't get in the way of God. I think I will close with uh, the words of another mystic, a medieval theologian and mystic, and one of my favorites, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who said that the greatness of the human condition uh, uh, is this, that we are kapas universi, capable of the universe. And so I hope that those uh, words from a very old medieval uh, theologian provides power, empowerment, and inspiration and love to each of you here in this space, but also anybody who listens and um, and use that power to show up to yourself, to be committed to the life that is unfolding before you and to be radically obsessed with everything that is and everything that will be. Because in the end, the story is complete. Love wins and that means we win. And so... Mm. Let's dance and celebrate as we begin and continue this revolution. Amen. Amen.
So thank you all for being here today. Thank you for having this conversation. Very powerful and important. Before we go, I would like to offer you both the chance to do a quick plug in case people want to find out more about your work. Yeah, so I've got two things to plug. Firstly, our community has a podcast called the Foothills Deeper Podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to say it's pretty good. If you're into exploring kind of Unitarian Universalist theology and conversations, we do things where, you know, someone will preach a sermon and then someone else will interview them about that sermon and ask them a bunch of tough and sometimes challenging questions, which is really beautiful. So check us out where podcasts are. And then the other thing I want to lift up is uh, the Side with Love campaign is partnering with uh, my congregation to launch the Uplift Collective, which is a group of Korean trans uh, folks who are going to create content promoting, uh, preaching the gospel of queer and trans divineness online. And we are going to be uh, rolling that out in the next few weeks. So you can uh, learn more at link tree you can put in the show notes slash uplift collective um, there's 10 or 12 uh, uu creators on tiktok instagram facebook and other places who are going to create uh, trans and queer affirming content uh, because this is what we need right now and you can find all things related to me uh, by just simply googling my name and the people's priest and everything will pop up i have worked very hard to make my branding very simple <laughs> and succinct <laughs> and so if you're wondering where i am just google the people's priest uh on the internet and you should be able to find me if not you can go to revjerrymaynard.org uh, which is my website where you can find my books my blogs my uh, services that i provide uh, for small businesses, nonprofits, and church congregations, faith congregations. And you can check out the show notes for my link tree, where you can also find links to my podcast, my YouTube channel, and courses that I teach online, and all the other things. Awesome. Great. And as always, you can find out more about River Road by visiting rruc.org or checking out our very own link tree and social media links in the show notes. All link trees. <laughs> All the link trees. Thank you. I want to close out with this reading from Adrienne Marie Brown, The Radical Gratitude Spell. You are a miracle walking. I greet you with wonder. In a world which seeks to own your joy and your imagination, you have chosen to be free every day as a practice. I can never know the struggles you went through to get here, but I know you have swum upstream and at times it has been lonely. I want you to know I honor the choices you made in solitude and I honor the work you have done to belong. I honor your commitment to that which is larger than yourself and your journey to love the particular container of life that is you. You are enough. Your work is enough. You are needed. Your work is sacred. You are here. And I am grateful. Until next time. Ashe. Awesome.